This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook. Today is January 10th, 2024. Please tell us your name and the years you were at Hofstra Radio. Uh, hi, Brian. My name is Brandon Costa. I was at WRHU from the fall of 2002 until the spring of 2006. Okay. Um, what shows and programs did you work on at the station? Uh, was mostly involved with the sports department. I was a sports department guy. Uh, did a lot of play-by-play on live games. Worked on the locker room, uh, mm-hmm. which at the time was on Sunday nights. I think it's on Fridays now, actually. I'd have to double-check that. I'm not sure where they have that now. But it was always on Sunday Sunday nights, and we would spend like the whole Sunday prepping that show and do it for an hour. Um also, you know, did the did some of the shows where you kind of had to like fulfill your station duties and did like the classics and the jazz cafe, which were on like at the time, like almost ate up the whole like school day, essentially. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. think it was from like yeah, after the morning show would sign off, it would be like classics for three hours and like jazz for three hours um, and then did a couple of more fun things like the rock and roll oasis every once in a while. But that wasn't like uh, it wasn't necessarily a huge thing. There was definitely a lot of like filling station obligations um, with with some of those slots. So it was largely a sports department guy when i was there okay did you work on any of the weekend shows like irish country or polka or anything like that um a little bit here and there i I mean we would interact with those folks a lot because we would be there on saturdays doing games and sundays like prepping the locker room and usually we would be around in some capacity to help out with the various marathons that they would do like the you know the italian marathon and polka we were we're always very close with basha because polka Mm -hmm. would be on on sunday afternoons and we would be prepping the uh prep in the locker room and I'm sure she probably wanted to uh kick us all out because we were milling about while she's trying to do her show but she was always wonderful to us um but yeah there was a lot of those weekend programming tours some of those people I mean they were there forever um and they were always really really kind to us even though I'm sure they you know were probably interacting with us more when we were trying to preempt them than when they were (laughs) on the air right right um did you have any titles or positions at the station one year I was briefly assistant sports director. I believe that was in my sophomore year. So speaking of preemption notices, I had the the honor of like writing up the stack of those. And that made me, I'm sure, a really popular person around town. Uh, <laughs> as I changed majors halfway through my time at Hofstra, actually. I, went, I started there as a, as a broadcast journalism major. And then after my sophomore year, I switched to um, education. So I needed to kind of focus more on that. And I needed to take 18 credit semesters instead of 15 credit semesters in order to make sure I still graduated in four years. So I still remained active with the station throughout, but I kind of had to dial back on the like executive involvement, if you will. So I just had that Mm -hmm. one year where I was assistant sports director. Huh. The the rare and unique case of someone who actually started doing more schoolwork once they got involved with the radio station. <laughs> Usually it's the opposite where people yeah, are like, I yeah. go to class once in a while. You actually took on more responsibility. Yeah. In, in retrospect, it was probably not the smartest thing to do, especially since I still do work in the sports industry to an extent now. So right. I did all that switching to education, thinking I was going to become a high school history teacher, did all this extra coursework. Uh, and then I never became a teacher and just ended up working in what I do now. So, I mean, hey, hindsight's twenty twenty, and you had to figure that stuff out at the time. So yeah. I don't, I'm not saying I regret it in any way, but yeah, it, at, at the end of the day, sure, probably could have just stuck to RHU stuff because you're right. Like when you do the when you're involved in RHU, not just a sports department thing either. It's like so much of what you do at WRHU is as important, if not more important, than your coursework. Mm-hmm. It feels like because yep, you're getting yep. such better on hand, uh, you know, hands on experience. So yeah, I, I went with the more school route, which you know is probably pretty dumb. 
<laughs> well, I wouldn't say that. And, uh, <laughs> and speaking as someone who went into radio and TV and then became a teacher later in life, and a number of sure. us have done this thing, it's, you know, leave the, leave the door open. We'll, we'll, we'll see. Maybe those courses will come in handy or, or at some point. But yeah, maybe um, somewhere down the line, yeah. Yeah. Um, did you have any nicknames or on-air personas at the station? No, 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 not really. I mean, I, I had like, you know, stupid nicknames that we would say to each other, like just like B-Man or something like that, but nothing that I used on air. I tend to, we tend to, at least I did, I kept it pretty formal on there. There wasn't really any, any nicknames ahead on air. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Um, so you alluded to this a second ago uh, about what brought you to the station, but I'd like to ask this two-part question. Okay. What was it that first brought you to Hofstra Radio? And then if you could describe the station for those of us who weren't there at the same time, what did the station look like? What did it smell like? Who did you meet? What was your first impression uh, at the beginning? Well, I remember it, it definitely wowed me because this was when they were already in the Dempster facility, um, uh, kind of on that like caddy corner, like where the offices now i'm not sure if they still use that main studio mm-hmm. on the corner primarily i think they do um i haven't been there in a little bit um but uh, you know at the time i was looking at colleges to do sports broadcasting that was very much what i wanted to do uh and uh, when i went and saw that facility it was kind of the perfect balance of impressive and accessible hmm. yeah i visited a couple other schools i visited like penn state and they had really really cool facilities but you needed to like get accepted into main campus and then you needed to go through all these various things. I'm sure a lot of people have said over the years, it's like, you know, do you go to a place like a Penn state or a Syracuse? And it's like, all right, yeah, you might, might be able to get into the program by junior year. Um, and then there were a couple of other schools in my home state of New Jersey that I went and visited where they had a radio department, but it was kind of just like a small closet in like Mm -hmm. some studio in some classroom somewhere. And it just was kind of like, Oh, this is it. Um, so when I got, I remember touring Hofstra before I applied and got accepted there and just feeling like it was just that perfect balance of impressive yet accessible. Like I can get involved in this. This is really cool. They take this as seriously as I would want to take this, uh, when I get here. Um, so I just remember everything just being very shiny, very clean. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't exceptionally new, but it was still pretty new at the time. I feel like, um, and how, how it smelt, I don't know if I really remember. I mean, by the time we were there, I know it just smelt a lot like, you know, cheeseburgers and, uh, you know, uh, mozzarella sticks and the things that you could eat unabashedly when you were a freshman in high school and have it not affect your health at all. Right, uh, right. But yeah, yeah, I just remember it was just really impressive and it made me go like, oh, this is this is the place that I need and want to go for sure. So did you have in, in mind what a college radio station would look like? Did you have any radio experience? What was it that drew you to the field? No, not really. I mean, I knew that I wanted to do sports broadcasting, but, you know, in the early 2000s, I mean, obviously a television programs were available and Hofstra had one, um, but this is pre YouTube, pre video, mm-hmm. primarily being the thing. So radio always seemed like the obvious way to like get involved. Um, so I didn't really have much knowledge of it. I didn't come from a school that had any kind of media program like that. I did 
theater and drama in high school. And that was mostly a uh, crack me out of my shy shell that I had until I got into high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was never something that I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to be an actor and be on Broadway when I grow up. It was just kind of like something that was fun to do. And I did it with my friends. Um, and then sports broadcasting felt like the thing that I really wanted to do. I also wanted to write, too. And they still, you know, they had a good um paper and journalism and uh, journalism department at, at Hofstra at the time. So honestly, I didn't know what a radio station would look like until I started touring uh, campuses. So I definitely went in pretty blind. And I think that kind of uh, uh, naivete kind of helped me a little bit because I was able to kind of come in with a, uh, a non-judgmental eye. It wasn't like there was even any schools where I was like, oh, I really got to go to this school because that's where the best mm-hmm. sports broadcasters go. I kind of like looked at the five to 10 schools that I toured and Hofstra was the one that really stood out in a big way. And I'm kind of glad it turned out that way. And I kind of went in with kind of, uh, you know, a clear head because it allowed me to kind of judge the programs, not on name brands. Cause it's very easy to be like, Oh, you want to go to like a Penn state or something like that. Right. I was able to just say like, no, this is the school that will genuinely offer me the best opportunities right out of the gate. Okay. So, so you make the decision and you come to Hofstra. Um, what do you remember about getting involved? There was a training class. Was there an mm-hmm. interview? How, what were your first days like at the station? Oh, well, it's funny. I remember, I remember going to accepted students day. So this is before starting. I remember going to accepted students day, uh, with a buddy of mine from home who was also a Hofstra grad. Um, and we were, I was there with my parents and I was sitting up towards the front and Ed Ingalls spoke to the room. Mm. Um, I did not know who Ed Ingalls was. My dad sure knew who Ed Ingalls was. I remember turning around and him, his head popping up out of the crowd like a meerkat, just like, that's Ed Ingalls. Holy crap. So Mm -hmm. I I was just kind of like, okay, I don't know what my dad's all about. And I came back and my dad's like, you're going here. And I was like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, I have my, you know, I'm, we're at accepted students day. Yes, I am going here. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, he was like, he knew about, you know, Ed calling Super Bowls and the radio and being on New York radio and everything like that. So that's, I came in again, very uneducated on kind of the history of that and was immediately blown away by just how, uh, how welcoming he was and how personable he was. And it was only really after learning more about his career where I'm like, this guy is dedicating all this time, effort, and love to us snot-nosed kids who are just like, yeah, I want to do sports radio, and being totally understanding and, uh, you know, despite coming with all the credentials in the world. Um, so I remember before even getting to Hofstra, I remember that being my first uh, my first memory, really, of being involved in WRHU in some way is uh, Ed Ingalls leaving my dad starstruck. Uh, but yes, we did have a training class when he got there. He had to apply, got accepted to the training class, did the interview, um, all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I remember being a pretty rigorous process uh, and it, it, you know, it feeling pretty high stakes because I'm sure you probably hear this from a lot of people who say, I went to Hofstra for WRHU. Uh, you definitely have that hanging over your head where if you're like, if I don't go in, get into this thing, the hell am I doing here? <laughs> you know, right. so it, it does feel like pretty high stakes when you're trying to get in. Yeah. And then it's really, it's, it's like another, it's not for credit, but it's, it's on par. And a lot of people say it's, it's just as tough as the regular classes they were taking. Mm-hmm. Do you remember oh, yeah. learning I, anything in particular during the classes? Um, no, I mean, I, I mean, I learned a whole heck of a lot about the technology and I learned way more about the business, uh, in mm. terms of, you know, things like EAS tests and like your, your obligations to the community and all those things like that were really, really insightful and really, really helpful. Uh, and I remember, um, 
probably, not even probably, definitely studying harder for that test than any test that I took in my time at Hofstra. I mean, I got a really good score on it, but the um, the ROI on the amount of time that I spent studying on it is probably not in proportion to the score I got. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, it, it was uh, it was pretty legit and pretty serious. Um, and I remember in the early days, you know, meeting people like, you know, Andrew Falzone, I remember being really welcoming when he was there. I don't know if he was the station manager yet. He might have been um, when I was coming in, um, but he was extremely helpful. And I've always been really appreciative of how welcoming he made me feel when I was there before I'd even qualified for the training class. I remember seeing him around um, the station, like after interviews and him just being like, yeah, you know, and just being a very, very welcoming person. He was a, a good representative at the station at the time. Um, mm. And that made me feel generally good about it because i mean you could say all that you want about the facilities and the curriculum and all that kind of stuff um all that stuff is pretty hard to power through um when you don't have good people around you to work with and that's something that's always stuck with me even into my career is like yeah there might be a name brand you want to work for you might not want to work for a professional sports franchise or for a professional sports network but at the end of the day who are you working for and who are you working with um, and that always stuck out to me as one of the my favorite parts of WRHU is that there was a lot of really smart, likable people who cared about what they were doing. And that's just mm -hmm. a really positive environment to be a part of. Mm. So you, you can't do better than getting an introduction from Ed Ingalls and Andrew <laughs> Falzone. Just really good guys, smart guys, capable. What were your first impressions of Bruce? Bruce, oh, I mean, Bruce, uh, when you talk about it, everything in the beginning feeling like high stakes, uh, he definitely made things feel like high stakes in the very beginning. He was the one that probably came in, and I, and I always loved Bruce. I had, a, I had a great relationship with Bruce, and obviously uh, I miss him dearly now. Um, uh, you know, I was so bought in. I was so drinking the Kool-Aid in the beginning that when, mm -hmm. you know, he was giving his speeches in the beginning uh, of, like, the training classes, I was like, yeah, yeah, this is this is life and death. This is big deal. This is big time, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> and he, he instilled an appreciation in what we were doing and what we were trying to be a part of. Um, and I think that was a huge underrepresented or underappreciated part, at least when you're there because you're a kid and you don't really know any better An underappreciated factor Bruce was in what made the station operate so well when he was not there. I look back now at times and I'm like, most of the time, it was only students on air, in the, in the building, on the microphones, running the boards. Um, obviously, you know, people like uh, uh, Bruce and Ed and Joel Meyer, who was ops manager at the time um, when I started there. Um, they were all very present and they were fantastic leaders. But everything that they did, I think, was most valued at the times when they were not in the room. Because you think about it, just like kids just literally 18, 19, 20 year old kids running a radio station like it's a real radio station. And most of that was because, uh, you know, Bruce instilled that uh, respect for what we were doing and respect for the institution that is the station. Um, and I think that he deserves a lot of credit for that um, in that it ran so well, even in his absence. Hmm. Yeah, I think throughout the history of Hofstra Radio, there's always been uh, this 
amount of responsibility on the students' heads. There's a lot of opportunity to do all sorts of things, but you have to demonstrate the responsibility and and uh, the dedication to the job. And I think that weeds out a fair amount of people. But um, sure. it sounds like you're in a really good position. You go through this program. You're taking it seriously. You pass the test. Now it's time for your first time on the air. Do you remember what that was like, what you were thinking, what you were feeling? I, I mean, the first time I was on air was definitely had to have been a sports hit at the end of a news line. That's that, mm-hmm. that was kind of how they got us going at the time. And I, I, that might still be the case now. I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, basically you would get a news line shift and there would be three minutes at the end for sports. Um, and I recall Ed being right there in the room with all of us while the new, while news was getting done, went down the line, did all the different segments and then got to sports at the end. Uh, and I found it so cool that he was that dialed in and it was probably like, you know, a random Tuesday afternoon. God only knows when it was. He gave me notes right away. And, uh, you know, I remember those things in the beginning and, and I don't mean to make this sound cocky at all. I was just like, I'm just reading some words off a piece of paper. Like it's, it's not mm-hmm. that hard. But then once you start getting the notes from him, you're like, oh yeah, there really is like an art to this. And there's a way to make this tighter and cleaner. And you got to think about how the person, what are the conditions that the person is listening to this in? This isn't like writing for a newspaper or this isn't like writing for a website. This is like, you're really trying to give people information as succinctly and as entertaining Lee, if that's a word, uh, as possible. Um, so I, I think right off the bat there, I kind of, I, I gained a greater appreciation pretty quickly of just kind of the art that goes into making something informative and entertaining simultaneously in a radio environment. Um, I don't recall the first time I did play by play on something. I can't think of when that was. I can certainly recall the last game that I did on play by play because it was a pretty dramatic after lacrosse loss, but uh, that's another story that we can get into if you want to. But, um, but yeah, I remember that first time, definitely like going in a little naive and being like, man, how, how hard could this be? And it's like, oh, sure. If you want to read words off the paper, you can do that. But if you want to be good at this, listen to the things that like Ed's telling you right now. Hmm. Hmm. So I, I was wondering if you would, wouldn't mind indulging me here a little bit because I'd like to get a sense of, of the studio and space when you were talking about, I guess, what they would call Studio South now or uh, mm-hmm. sort of that fishbowl aspect. So there's there's the board and, and a board operator and perhaps a host. And then if I if I remember correctly at the time, the there was sort of like a wraparound uh, yep. uh, table. Could you describe a little bit about that and who's who's in the room during Newsline? How are people moving around? What's what's the feeling like? Yeah, it it was it was in that studio, and yeah, you, you described it pretty well. Usually, there was a board op, like someone dedicated to board opping and engineering, um, right behind the board, and then the person running the uh, who was basically the lead news anchor would kind of sit all the way at the end, kind of. Uh, away from the door like there Mm -hmm. used to be a big rack a a big wall of cds over in that corner which i have to imagine does not exist anymore because why would it (laughs) um (laughs) big big wall of cds in the corner and then there was like a big desktop computer kind of at the end and usually the person hosting the show got that like desktop computer and had the script there and then they kind of like go down the line 
And I, if I'm remembering correctly, I think there'd be like one or two people that would kind of go back and forth on the main stories. And then there would be like a weather person, maybe a traffic person. And then sports would be all the way at the end, kind of right by the door at the vestibule mm-hmm. when you would walk in. Um, and you'd be the one who'd had like, you know, you'd take the door in the back every once in a while if someone came bursting <laughs> in and needed to like hand in new copy or whatever. Um, but yeah, I remember it being really crowded and Ed standing right in the corner, kind of like when you walk in those doors to the left of the board, like right next to me. So it did kind of hit me a little bit in that moment when you're like, you're going on the air for the first time and Ed Ingalls, who I now have this new appreciation of understanding his background and everything. And he's standing literally like two feet from you. You're like, okay, don't blow this now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Again, like I said, this is why he came here. Uh, Make, make, make the most of this opportunity. Um, So uh, I just remember feeling really energized by it. Um, And there's, again, the the thing that I always appreciated about everything that we did at WRHU was that everyone cared. Um, And that's not always the case everywhere you go. It's something that you take for granted and you realize when you work at other places where maybe, maybe morale is low or people aren't motivated or people are overworked or people are burnt out, which is very popular, you know, very, you know, a thing you run into a lot these days where people don't feel properly compensated. Uh, You know, you learn to appreciate the times when you're in a room with people and they all, and you all care about the same thing and you really genuinely want to do a good job. Um, And I remember feeling that from day one. Hmm. Um, a number of people who've worked primarily with the sports department and all sorts of generations have, have sort of described it, uh, officially and unofficially and unironically as a fraternity that there's sort of a separate group of mostly guys and that changes over Mm -hmm. time, but mostly people who are really dedicated to doing that thing mostly. And sometimes there's a sense of camaraderie and brotherhood. And sometimes there's a a sense of competition. Sometimes it's both. What was, what was your experience like getting involved with the sports department and this group of, of ambitious people? Yeah, it was definitely the closest thing to a fraternity. And I'm the furthest thing from a fraternity guy that you could possibly Mm -hmm. meet way too much of a nerd for that. Uh, but yeah, it was the closest thing for better or worse. That's probably the best way to describe it. I remember when I got there, the sports department did not have the best relationship with the management, you know, like Bruce and, uh, Bruce and Joel and everything. And, uh, you know, probably for its own fault. I'm not going to lie. I wasn't there. I can't really attest to it, but I remember getting there and feeling like there was a lot of contention. There's a contentious relationship between sports and everyone else. And I would like to think I'm not taking credit for it in any way, but I'd like to think by the time that my class was leaving, that that had changed some. Um, mm-hmm. it was mostly guys. We did have some fantastic women who were in our department. Diane Ingalls was in my class. Uh, Steph Cruz was in my class. We had, uh, uh, some older ones, uh, that were, uh, in the class at the time, like the, like Jenny Nan and Shannon Bennett, I believe was a year or two younger than me. Um, and the, they, but it, it's, it's not lost on the fact that I'm sure from their perspective that was a tough environment to come into because it was very, very, very much a guys, guys kind of place. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I, I believe that we tried our best to make it a welcoming place, but I'm sure if you walk in and, you know, you know a bunch of college guys in the early two thousands, it probably was not the most politically correct place in the world. And if they, you know, I hope that nothing like that ever, uh, you know, made anyone uncomfortable but I can, I can certainly see it being an intimidating place for an outsider. I know for me in the beginning, it was felt very much like an initiation process in the beginning. Mm-hmm. You did a lot of the grunt work in the early days. You got made fun of <laughs> a lot in the early days, got picked on maybe a little bit, uh, but nothing ever malicious. It was kind of just felt like it was a part of the process. 
Yes. Um, but yeah, I could definitely see the fraternity being a part of it. It was very competitive. People would work really, really, really hard. Um, and it, it, one of the things that I really got out of that process was learning, appreciating how to really, really cover a beat. Because I feel like mm-hmm. when you're really young and you dream about becoming a sports broadcaster, you're like, oh, I'm going to be a radio guy for the Yankees or I'm going to be covering games at Madison Square Garden. It's like, no, 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 no. We are focusing on Hofstra football, Hofstra men's basketball, Hofstra women's basketball. Like you're focusing on these things and you are pulling back the onion and learning as many things about these programs in the early days of the internet, I mean, Facebook came out when I was in college, so mm-hmm. there was not nearly as much, um, you know, online research. You could maybe get on a message board and find people's opinions on things or find some articles on newspapers, um, but it took a lot of work to really understand these teams um, in an athletic department that had great had great sports information professionals, but was largely not covered very much by television or newspapers in the area which was an ex- on the flip side, an exciting opportunity for us because we got to cover things and be the ultimate source for it. I mean, that was the crazy thing is that even if mm-hmm. you go to other really great radio programs and there are plenty of them out there, they'll still be a professional broadcast and then the student broadcast will be on 87 whatever or 88 whatever and it'll mostly just be kind of like a playground for the kids. We were the only place that if someone wanted to listen to a Hofstra sporting event, they had they came to it. So we were getting thrown right into the fire when you look outside the four walls. When it came to people listening to Hofstra sports or caring about Hofstra sports, we were the front lines. Um, so that led to us really needing to try really hard because um, there was a lot of talented people that were involved with. I mentioned some of the people who were there when I got there, like Ralph Benarchik and Jared Greenberg, Chris Karen was there. Nick Anastas was super talented. Josh Harmon, Kevin Ingalls, um, Andrew Cohen was there. Um, all these people knew so much when I got there that it was like, oh yeah, it's, this isn't just some cute sling around some hot takes around the late nineties Yankees. This is no, no, no. We cover these programs and you better know a lot about them because guess what? You have to interview the coach tomorrow and you better know what you're talking about. <laughs> Yeah. Um, a number of those names that you mentioned I've, I've spoken to, whether it's it's Ralph or, or Andrew or Shannon, they all spoke of, of sort of like, there's only so much airtime and sure. there are these opportunities and it's, you have to be good because everyone else is good and it's pushing you to be better. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's sort of what I was looking for. Like, when yeah. did you become comfortable with that sort of friendly I don't want to say competition, but that, that friendly rivalry within the department. When did you feel like, okay, I'm with these guys. I'm with these people. I like this. I'm, I'm good at it. Um, I always felt comfortable. Uh, I mean, I never got like really nervous going on air or anything like that, but in terms of like really feeling like I was getting into a groove, that was probably more of my second half of college when maybe some of the opportunities started to open up a little more, uh, you know, cause people, you know, people like Ralph and Jared and Nick, they were, they were so good that they were getting a lot of those, uh, play by play opportunities. One of the interesting things when you think about like the grand scheme of like media nowadays is like when I was there, that's when we first started introducing what was called the Hawk, mm-hmm. which was basically streaming only, which now sounds funny in retrospect because everything is streaming. It, but that was like the beginning of like, oh, we're also going to do other games and they're going to be on the Hawk. You can only get to them on the website. They're not going to be on the main radio station. And I remember that being an exercise in 
respecting every broadcast because that was where usually you got the opportunity to take your first shots at play by play. So you couldn't look at it as like, ah, well, it's just a game that's on the Hawk. Who's actually going to find it. It's not on the radio station. You needed to treat every time you got on air, um, like it was the Super Bowl, And if you did that, put your head down and worked hard and treated every team you were covering, um, like with the utmost respect in every game you were covering, even if it was, uh, you know, a, a, you know, a team towards the end of the season and they're, you know, uh, two and 20, you cover that game like it's a big deal. Uh, and, and you needed to do that in order to not only just get the reps, but also to uh, gain the respect uh, of the people that you're working with and the teams that you were broadcasting. They deserved that uh, because we were the only source and the ultimate source. So having that that overflow of adding that streaming layer, layer opened up a lot of opportunities, I feel like, for kids in my class, like that, like I mentioned, the Pete McCarthy's and the Matt Grice's and the Diana's and Steph's and Justin Paley's of the world, where we got one of the first opportunities to maybe get some extra reps in an environment on the streaming only side that helped us feel a lot more comfortable when we started doing games on the genuine quote unquote air. Hmm. Um, I, I, I wish I could remember the exact way you phrased it just a, a minute ago. I think it was something like you, you, you learned to respect every broadcast or respect every game. Mm -hmm. And I really like that idea. Was that something that, that you think kind of came out of the department? Did that come from Ed and Bruce? What, where did that idea come from? Um, I, I, I mean, Ed, I'm sure deserves a lot of credit for it. Um, I, I think that a lot, a lot of that came from organically within us, you know, I, I mean, I think that we really took a lot of respect in the schedule. Like we always would have a big meeting usually at the beginning of the semester and like lay out the schedule and find out which opportunities you got. And those were really exciting because they, there would always usually be some like fun out of conference game. Like I remember my sophomore year, uh, the Hofstra men's basketball team played at Georgia Tech. So we were going to get to go to Atlanta. And like, I, I honestly, my first, the first time I ever went on a plane in my life was for a WRHU sports broadcast. We were doing mm. a lacrosse, men's lacrosse game my sophomore year at Notre Dame. So we flew to Pittsburgh and then connected and went to South Bend uh, for that game against Georgia Tech in Atlanta. We drove, we were like on the T bus and we drove all the way down to Atlanta with the team. Um, that was, uh, I remember those meetings being a really big deal because you would see the schedule and you would see the opportunities and the games you were going to get. Uh, and, and that was really, really cool. And that's maybe where a lot of the competitive side came out. Sure. Um, but I don't really ever really remember recall, at least for me personally, feeling any like, you know, animosity or rivalry with any of the, the, the people that I worked with on a regular basis, especially in my class, because it always felt like there was enough opportunities to go around. And whoever was the sports director at the time did a good job of um, giving the people who deserve the opportunities the most opportunities, but also kind of spreading love around and giving people, um, uh, you know, opportunities to do some games here and there for various clubs that, uh, uh, that it always kept you excited and always kept you looking forward to something new down the line. Hmm. So it sounds like once you were cleared, you, you jumped in with, with Newsline and I guess mm -hmm. uh, you start doing games in the locker room. What were, were those early days like getting used to, to doing those shows or broadcasts? Yeah, I think you learn just how much time goes into 
putting one of these things together. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think people don't realize that they're like, oh, you host a two hour radio show. So you're at the station for two hours. It's like, no, no. For something like the locker room, we would get there at like noon, one o'clock in the afternoon for a broadcast that would go on the air at like seven or eight o'clock at night which may be a bit of overkill, but when you feel like you don't know or you feel like you have so much you need to learn and the competition between everyone was so was so tight, uh, you felt like you needed to put in the hours. Uh, so I think you really learned to appreciate just how much work goes behind the scenes in these things, especially prepping for games. I mean, we would we learned in the early days from some of the older guys. Like I remember Ralph teaching me how to do like a, like, like a game sheet and you would have like this giant manila folder and on one side would be the visiting team and on the other side would be the Hofstra team and you'd have all the starting lineups big numbers names little stories stats all these things that you'd pull out of the game notes the the Hofstra uh, sports information department would put out these massive game note documents that were like 50 60 70 pages long and you'd have to try to pluck out any of the relevant information and try to put that in a situation and then you learn and Ed's thing always with us was like you should leave 75% of your prep on the table at the mm. end of a broadcast. You, there's wow. no such thing as being too prepared. And I remember Ralph saying that to me at one point. Um, like, so you learned that I, and you feel like you want to get everything in because you're like, I did the prep work. It's like studying for a test and then not getting asked about it. And you're like, why did I bother studying it for it then? Right. So you learn that you just got to like prep, prep, prep. And then you develop the feel for, When's the appropriate time to insert a certain nugget about that player? I'm not going to talk about, um, you know, the starting point guards, um, uh, you know, older brother who also played at the opposing school right. when there's two minutes left in the game and it's a one point game. It's like, that's not the time for that. You know, so you learn to like really appreciate all the prep work. Um, and that's where I think the camaraderie really played in because we would amidst the heckling of each other would help each other out so much. We really wanted to put on a great show. Yes, we wanted to improve ourselves, but it was always about doing a great game broadcast or putting together a great locker room and holding ourselves accountable to accuracy and um, you know, ensuring that we put together a show that was informative and that people wanted to listen to, uh, and more importantly, that the subject matters uh, appreciated and respected and knew, all right, those guys are putting in their time. They know their thing. They're not just here winging this. Um, that's probably the biggest things that came out of those, those early days was really learning the, the, the exercises that you need to do before you get on air. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, it, it, it sounds like a, a ton of work and a ton of fun. And it sounds like mm -hmm. it took up uh, a great deal of your time and you probably weren't expecting that as you're coming in. So, so I like to ask this question, if you could go back to your mindset at, at 18 years old and you're on your way to starting Hofstra or, or you're there, what did you think the radio station was going to be when you started and what did it become for you? Um, well, it's interesting. What I thought it was going to be was literally the first leg of my career, which when I reflect on it now, it was, but then, like I told you, halfway through college, I changed my major. So then mm -hmm. my junior and senior year, I was still very involved, still did a lot of games, still did a lot of locker rooms, um, but we definitely dialed it back some to account for some of that other schooling that I needed to do and student teaching and all that kind of stuff that I needed to do in order to get out, you know, get out four years. Um, couldn't afford to stay longer. Um, uh, so I think that there was just uh, it. 
its purpose changed when I was there right. and it became more of like a thing I did for fun because I had friends there towards the end. Um, and then when I ended up still going into, cause my first job out of college was not teaching, uh, Pete McCarthy helped me get a job at MLB.com with him. And then I started working there for a few years. Then I got a job at a newspaper in New Jersey. Um, and now I work for the company that I work for now. Yes. There were a couple of times where I tried to get teaching jobs in there and tutored for a while and worked at a, a, a special ed school for a little while. So there was a lot of like figuring stuff out in my twenties. Um, right. That kind of took me all over the place and was pulling me in different directions. Um, but it's ironic that now that I've been in this job that I'm at now for like 12, 12 years or so, it's like, oh, it did end up being that springboard for a career that I wanted to have. It didn't look exactly like the way I expected it to, but all of the skills and all of the relationship building that I learned in my early days when I was really raw at, at WRHU um, ended up being exactly what I expected it to be in the beginning. Took a little bit of a meandering route towards the end and in the early years of my career, um, but I think it eventually settled into exactly what I hoped it would be, which is like a foundation for, th there's so many things that I learned at Hofstra that I still apply uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, whether it comes to preparation or uh, respecting the organization that you work at or respecting the people that you work with respecting the people that work behind the scenes, the people that put in the work that you don't see on air, whether it's on camera or on radio, um, all that stuff I still, you know, carry with me and use literally every day to this day in my current job. Hmm. Uh, that's amazing. What a, what a great journey. Um, Brandon, I greatly appreciate your stories and your time. And uh, I have another set of questions and maybe someday we can uh, sit down and share some more stories. This was great. Sure. Yeah, I would love that. Thanks so much for the time. Um, obviously, this is a really impressive collection that you've built here with this series. Appreciate you doing it and uh, have always enjoyed listening to a lot of them. So thanks for the time.